Welcome to the Fly Fishing Insider Podcast, where each week we speak with brands, icons, innovators, and trailblazers within the fly fishing industry, exploring both the successes and failures they've encountered along the way to become who they are today. But first, if you have not yet subscribed to the podcast or joined our email list, please do so by going to the Fly Fisher Insider Podcast.com, where you can also find us on Instagram at Fly Fisher Insider Podcast. Now let's begin. Fishing Insider Podcast. Today, our guest is Jess McLaughlin. Jess is the owner of Jess McLaughlin Media. JM Media is known for producing outstanding content within the fly fishing industry. Here today to tell us more is Jess McLaughlin. Jess, welcome to the show. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. No problem. We're excited that you're here as well. Now, you've done a, a ton of, ton of, ton of stuff and produced a ton of content. So, I wanted to kind of jump into it and talk, cover everything. I mean, there's so much to talk about with you um, regarding your your involvement with the industry. So I think I'm going to start at the beginning. And can you tell us who exactly is Jess McLaughlin? Yeah, absolutely. I guess I was lucky enough to start fishing very young. I grew up in the West here in the States and had parents who got me out on a drift boat when I was barely walking. So I was able to grow up kind of with a, I think probably a pink Barbie rod in hand, which quickly became a fly rod. That led me into a career in the industry. For a while, I worked in lodges and fly shops here and actually abroad. I did a season on the Panoi River in Russia, which was kind of my first look at, hey, there's a much bigger fly fishing world beyond trout in Montana and Wyoming. And that really opened my eyes to wanting to get more involved creatively on just documenting the day-to-day. I think it's really fun to see what goes on behind the scenes at lodges and just fishing operations around the world. That's a good intro, Jess. Let's let's take it a step further. And like you said you grew up fly fishing and whatnot. Like when did it when did it become a passion of yours? Like when did you get actively involved, you know, to the to the level that you're at right now? You know, I I fished a lot as a kid and as an early teen and then actually had a pretty marked segue as like a, a late teenager and was a a competitive equestrian. So I was a Montana rodeo kid for a while and then actually got on to the English writing style of things. Um, And that took me over to Sweden. I got a job in Sweden working in the horse industry and kind of burned out on that quickly. I saw that it was a a very moneyed industry and missed kind of my down home, the rodeo people and the fishing people and the people I had grown up with. So I kind of did a 180 and abandoned my Olympic dreams on the equestrian side and came back to the fly world. And I think came back from the States and immediately started selling footwear in a sportsman's warehouse, just like a everyday show, uh, outdoor retail chain here in Montana and got right back into fly fishing. I was lucky enough to kind of be able to move back to Montana and pick up a rod. And it's always been on a personal level, a really good escape. You know, as things are busy, I think I was 19 when I moved back to the States and I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and spend a lot of time just grabbing a fly rod and going to the river and fishing and thinking. And then from there, did a couple more years in fly shops around the U.S., went over in 2012, I guess, to work on the Snowy River in Russia. And like I said, that was kind of a an interesting international experience. And I came back from that and was like, oh yeah, all in, let's, I want to find a way to do this 
for a living and be able to document that. That's amazing. Oh, you went to Russia. You were on yeah. the river, and that and that's when you like sat there and said you needed to expand upon this. Is that correct? It is. I mean, I had, I had written professionally and photographed professionally since two thousand nine. Okay. Um, but it had all been stateside and kind of focusing on the Western lifestyle and rodeo and trout fishing, which is fantastic. I still love doing that work, but that season in Russia really opened my eyes up to, oh, it's a much, much bigger world. Even though we lost, you know, fly fishing is a, a very, very small insular world. It's a pretty diverse one, which is really fun. And it's a lot of people around the world have kind of this uniting passion for fly fishing. So Jess, when did you start Jess McLaughlin Media? Walk us through the beginning when, when that transpired for you, when you sat there and said, okay, you come back from Russia, here you are, walk, walk us through when you wanted to take it to the level yeah. that you're at. No, it actually was pre-Russia when I, I founded the LLC and um, got the company going. It was back in 2009. I had an article that I was researching kind of on a whim, um, an investigative journalism piece. A dam had been proposed on a lake called Hebgen Lake which is a big kind of famous fly fishing lake uh, right outside of Yellowstone National Park here in Montana. And this is a hydroelectric dam that had been proposed. And as a local, I was a bit indignant. I think I was a 19-year-old, you know, just feeling upset that someone was going to be developing my local water when there were better alternatives nearby. And so I went ahead and kind of jumped in, wrote this article, got the supporting images, and had that published in American English. And that was my first real uh, fishing magazine publication. And loved it. I loved the work. I loved the, the journalism side of it. And so I think literally ate rice and beans for <laughs> months and saved up and bought my first DSLR camera. And went ahead and incorporated and was under the name Fire Girl Photography, which was a childhood nickname, up until, gosh, 2006. 16 probably and then 2016 I thought I figured okay I need to grow up and have a, a real business name so I went ahead and went the Jeff McLaughlin media route here's where we're going to go with this and this is what I'm kind of wondering you travel all over you, you kind of have this amazing like presence on, on capturing amazing photography what I'm wondering is how does one and what are the steps one would take to the to, to get into your shoes because I mean you're such an influence to so many people in the aspect of you, you live a good life. You have a good dream job. Do you know what I mean? Like you've seen mm -hmm. amazing stuff. You travel and you fish and, and whatnot. Walk us through what that is. I want to get down to the nitty gritty of like what you do in the day to day so that we can expose that to, to the listeners. Absolutely. I get a lot of emails about this. You know, how do I do what you do? In all honesty, it's 10 years of hard work. I had no, no kind of, trust fund to get me through this and no magic source of income that disappeared. It was a lot of working in fly shops and learning the industry and working on the river and learning the industry. I would highly suggest to anyone who wants to be a in fishing media at all, be it a photographer or a writer, spend years learning the industry, work with good guides, work with good lodges, um, really know your stuff because that will very quickly be exposed if you don't. I think it's really important for people in our industry to have a good foundation of just understanding what it is we do. And that will go a long way. Once I had that foundation and I'm still getting it, I'm by no means a, an expert angler. <laughs> I like to get out and fish wherever I am, but we're all learning. It's a lot of knocking on doors. I, I sent another one out this morning. I still send emails to editors whose 
outlets I like. I like their magazine. I like their website. And say, hey, here's who I am. Here's past work. Here's who I've written for. I think XYZ story might be a fit for you. And 90% of the time, it's a, hey, thanks, we're not interested, or there's no response at all. So it's, it's a lot of just kind of refusing to get punched back down mm-hmm. <laughs> and probably a little too too dogged with the determination sometimes, but it pays off. You know, there's no magic answer to this. I think you could you could ask any other photographer in the industry and they're probably going to have a different answer for you, Greg. But in all honesty, what's served me well is just learning the industry and then not being afraid to put myself out there. I'm a, a major introvert, so that's very uncomfortable for me. But I've learned to really enjoy kind of finding those editors whom I do really enjoy working with and then running with it and building those relationships. Absolutely. Jess, you know, you, you've done so many articles and so much good work traveling and whatnot. And I think that's what the, the fascination is with where you are. I mean, how many countries have you been to now with uh, with this job? You know, to be honest, I haven't added them up. I keep a, an old paper map on their wall and I circle all the countries as I go to them. I know I'm, I'm six continents. I need Antarctica, but I'm not sure how many countries. So it's it's quite a few um, from my research, and I mean I've lost track as well on that. So, but I mean I think do you think that's what the people are so fascinated with is like the stories that you bring to them, or do you think it's the lifestyle? Like like I mean I, I'm fascinated with it, and that's why I'm asking you. And I think I think it's fair to say that my listeners are fascinated as well. You know, traveling around, shooting for Yeti in you know some faraway location, and catching some amazing fish. I mean that. Man, who wouldn't want to do that? Yeah, I'm lucky. Yeah, I'm very <laughs> lucky to be able to do that. Definitely. And I mean, yeah. I'm sure it wasn't always so lucky. Is there? Can you tell us some troubling times while, while getting started? Yeah, I mean, I've had, I, I laugh at some point. I need to write a book on different medical accidents that happen in faraway lands. Um, I spent quality time in a hospital in Murmansk going through, I went to Russia on a work visa because I was working the whole season. And we had three days of mandatory medical testing in a, uh, felt like a military hospital. It wasn't, but just, it's kind of a James Bond style, the new black wall hospital in Murmansk. Um, and that, like as a 23 year old at the time, that was not, it was interesting. It wasn't necessarily fun. <laughs> um, I learned a lot about how to pantomime my way through Russian hospitals. And there's always little stuff. I had a, a shoot with Costa Sunglasses in French Polynesia in, I think 2015 mm-hmm. where I ended up losing both my big toenails my feet got coral cut through my wedding boots and got infected and it was day four of a week-long shoot and I think luckily there was a visiting medic who was coming around to these little islands and he was there and he basically said okay you're not going in the water because these are too badly infected and it's a job so I can't turn around and tell Costa hey I'm I have a foot infection I can't go in the water and shoot your content. So I just kind of bandaged it up and went for it and ended up with some gnarly scars and no toenails that luckily they grew back. But it's, it's a lot of little stuff like that. Um, you know, nothing terribly life-threatening as we all get various stomach viruses and all kinds of different places. Um, but stuff that makes you appreciate when you can have a trip and stay really healthy. That's, uh, I luckily kind of have my my vitamin routine down and my electrolyte routine down and all these different tips and tricks um, that I travel with now that keep me performing at the max. Cause if I have a day where I'm sick in bed, that's 
you know, a day where I'm effectively losing money on a shoot. So I try and avoid those as possible. Absolutely. No, for sure. Jess, you know what? Um, let's look at it like this. Is the new social media, and this is kind of where I want to go with this, I want to shift to this, is mm-hmm. the new way that like these social media influencers and whatnot, is that put in a factor or change to how you're doing your business or has it affected your business in any way with with the photographies or, or perhaps the brands or the locations that you're going to are, are shifting towards sure. that? Can you walk us through like how has it affected you and, and whatnot? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, Greg, and I'll be, I guess I'll go on the record, I'll be totally honest, I am not a fan of this new kind of influencer culture we've seen. Um, I'm friends with many of the folks in the fly industry and they're lovely people. I struggle a bit with the authenticity of the content. I just turned down last fall, I guess. I just turned down a really big offer from the company to an outdoor kind of mainstream outdoor company to become a quote unquote ambassador and basically get paid a lot of money to start posting about their content. And I turned it down because their ask was, we want your feed to become more about you and less about what you're seeing. And to me, like, again, personal opinion here, I want everyone to do themselves, but that flew in the face of why I do what I do. I love to tell other people's stories and kind of stay out of the picture. I think it's a probably a journalism background angle on it, but I think other people are so much more interesting. <laughs> I'd love to be able to go on a trip with people or meet cool people along the way and say, hey, let's, let's talk about you or let me tell your story or let me photograph you for a day it can be as simple as that and that there's really no appeal to me uh on sitting at the tripod and shooting photos of myself doing stuff i i try and do a bit of the behind the scenes hey here's the kit i'm taking here's what my i just did a post a couple weeks ago on a, a mobile office that i had on a recent shoot in chile that was just oh, yeah. a computer on a talking yeah. tape yeah, next to that. my tent yeah yeah i saw that yeah yeah and it's fun i think i get a lot of questions on what year do you use what what works, what doesn't. And I think that's beneficial to people to say, hey guys, I'm not getting paid by these companies, but here's the gear I find that works in the field for me. So I'll continue to do that, but I'm really not, personal opinion, I'm not a fan of kind of the pay-to-play influencer marketing, if you will. Mm-hmm. I think it is changing the landscape a lot. That, that's a lot of the is, brands I work with. That's exactly where I was going to go with that next, is how do you think it's changing? Perfect. Like, yeah. Great walk yeah. through that. I think it's, um, immensely changing it a lot of brands um definitely in the great outdoor space i'm seeing more fly brands go this way too some of the time they're transitioning their marketing dollars towards those influencers and i i get it from the business side the influencers have you know hundreds of thousands of followers and a great reach but i still think the authenticity of kind of their marketing and their story struggles with that of course it could so, it's, it's, it's clouded by dollars yeah. right? Exactly. It's, it is a business at the end of the day <laughs> for all of us in this industry. Um, it's dollars and cents. And it's, I'll be curious to see if that trend continues, if we kind of keep seeing brands buy into the influencer-driven marketing, or if we'll see folks kind of fall back to more authentic storytelling that just happens to feature their products. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to weigh on this. Normally, I keep a neutral standpoint, but here's here's my thought, Jess, and I just want to walk you through this. Yeah. And let me know if you agree or what you're thinking. Go for it. Find the fly fishing industry, and this is for all those influencers out there that are listening and brands. Do your homework because the fly fishing industry Mm -hmm. is very driven on the fact that um, 
So let's say I use Scientific Angler's Flyline. I am committed pretty much to that company for a hell of a long time. And there's no way in changing mm-hmm. my mind. Like my daddy drove a Ford, his daddy drove a Ford. You know what I mean? It's that kind of mentality. Um, so it's hard to change that the mind on that. Um, you know what I mean? And for these influencers and for influencers, like when you look at something like a company like that, like they have their brand ambassadors and their ambassadors are knowledgeable about the product. They've helped develop the product in some cases. Um, they've given the feedback into, you know, the, say the Sims G4 waiters. Like there was a lot of hands involved mm-hmm. with that, right? In in creating those waiters um, that were guy driven as opposed to someone that just has 250,000 followers that's going to sit there and get a, you know, a commission. So it's pretty hard to sell that to somebody that knows, right? I get it for those that don't know or aren't in the know. So that's kind of my thought. But I mean, usually when someone's committed to a, a waiter or a rod or a reel, they're committed. Like they're, they stick with that brand. It's mm-hmm. brand, brand loyalty. And it's hard to change. In my opinion, it's hard to change someone or dissuade someone from, Hey, you need to try this new reel because of ABC. So again, that's, that's my, two oh, cents. Absolutely. You know? no, I think it's a really good point. It's, I did a couple of years, uh, 2014, 2015, in-house with Orvis, mm-hmm. working at their headquarters in Vermont. And it's been really interesting to see, of course, most of us who work there use the Orvis gear, but there's always going to be odd pieces where I like another brand, something better than the Orvis equivalent. So we get together and fish and you have, you know, six Orvis employees and 90% of our kit is Orvis, but 10%, we're still holding true to like you said, either something our dad used and we still like it, mm-hmm. or we've had this piece of gear for a decade and it still works. So it's it's almost force of habit for the fly industry. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah, it's interesting. And, oh, sorry, I'm going to just grab one other thing that you said. I think the point of like ambassadors and gear testing versus influencers, brands working with individuals is extremely important, personal opinion, on the, the gear testing side because if you're a manufacturer, the odds are you're not going to be putting in 200 days on the water a year as a guide. You know, it's, it's two different worlds. And mm-hmm. I think some brands out there do a really good job of partnering with maybe not the guides who are, are insta-famous, but the guides who are actually out there grinding day in and day out and actually listen to that feedback. I think there's one thing for brands to say, oh, sure, we want your feedback, but they've already made up their mind. But then you see some brands who actually ask for feedback and then input that feedback into the final product. And that's, I hope we see more of that. Some brands are really good at it. Others are not, but that it's a healthy thing. I think for the industry. Yeah. hundred percent. Uh, couldn't agree more. It's, it's, it's a great, it's great to see that brands are actually doing that. So, you know, Jess, I know you're like, you're, Absolutely. you're so involved again, like with the media side, um, let's, let's, let's step away from the pictures. What about the articles um, that you write and whatnot? Do you do, are you doing reviews or are you like, are, are you doing product reviews? Do you just, or do you write more journey-based articles? Walk us through that. Yeah, a bit of everything. I do, I still do a bit of investigative journalism. I was way into that kind of fisheries conservation um, when I first started. And now I do probably a bit less of that and a bit more of the destination features. Mm-hmm. It's really fun to go to places that maybe are less popular on the fly fishing culture's radar. I had a great trip to Hokkaido um, in northern Japan a couple of years ago, and the fishing was exceptional, but it's really not a place you hear people talking about. And even um, Tasmania, where it was last fall, it's becoming 
more popular in kind of Australia as a whole is getting more on North American angling's radar. But it's not not a place you're going to see every booking agency marketing right now. So it's really fun for me to be able to go to these places and kind of, I'm not by no means the first angler there, but connect with new, you know, local anglers there. Mm-hmm. And then just see a different part of the world beyond the, there's so many awesome places that we all kind of know and love in the industry. And then I do a bit of gear writing. I have a pretty hard and fast rule that I don't, I don't get paid by manufacturers for gear writing. And it's 80% of the time, it's stuff that I've paid retail price for. You know, I've, I've yeah, paid my yeah. own money for it. <laughs> I don't like the kind of, oh, let us feed you product and then you can write XYZ about it. I, I don't agree with that model. But I do enjoy writing, kind of like I was talking about with the, the mobile desk idea. I enjoy tearing through gear. I'm very hard on my gear and then saying, hey, this held up and I really like it. If you're looking for XYZ, give it a try. I think that's fun and hopefully that's helpful to some folks. Oh, for sure it is. Definitely. So, so what's your ideal project? Like, what do you look for in, in a project? Like whether it's taking your pictures or going on these destinations, like what is it that you sit there and you're like, Hey, I need to go here. And you mentioned earlier how you reach out to these editors and stuff. Like what it walk us through how you do all that, like and come up with the idea. Yeah. And it's no project is the same. So it's definitely that's, not a, that's good. a hard and set that's formula. Good. It is good. It keeps me on my toes. I'm always having to learn. I have a shoot. I just did a shoot, gosh, three weeks ago now. So pretty recently down in Chile. And it was a shoot for Orvis. And I was lucky enough to be able to meet a couple friends down there. And we had kind of an old rickety van we were camping in and just brought a bunch of Orvis gear that we needed to shoot. So we were able to kind of have the product with us. But these two folks who were there, they're not models. They're fantastic professional fishing guides who they both got it in Chile. They've both got it in Alaska. They just kind of get it done. Mm-hmm. And so any chance where I can have gear, I like shooting commercial content, um, any chance where I can have gear, but put it on people who are actually out doing this stuff regardless. I'm much, very much an editorial style shooter. I hate giving people direction, and I, I usually avoid it in every way possible. I won't say, hey, go walk down that beach and then walk back towards me. I'm instead kind of running around and sprinting around trying to position myself to shoot things organically. So any opportunity where I can kind of, it's good to have a group. I love having people who kind of know each other and are comfortable with each other so they can laugh and things can go wrong and people can grin and just get that interaction and just kind of run with it. I think the best photo shoot is a, it's not a photo shoot. (laughs) It's an experience or a trip that you just happen to have a camera along with you. And then from the writing side, I mean, coming back from the shoot, the commercial assets will go to the client. And then I still have like an, an editorial story. So I really like to come back from a project and kind of synthesize, okay, here's the photography that's being shipped this way. And then the written story, I, I take notes every night when I'm in camp or at a lodge, I can pull all those notes together and write a story and then have that run in, you know, a magazine somewhere. Just you do a bit of the storytelling because it's fun. It's, you get to tell all those little secrets that maybe don't come across in the images. No, definitely. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I like how you take the notes uh, every night while you're on these trips. I know when we do ours, it's something that uh, we're we're starting to do too because you just can't remember like a week or two later. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, um, I'm the worst. I'm usually up shooting like long exposures at night or up playing with people. You know, doing yeah. sitting around the campfire or something. So I yeah. by day three or four, especially if there's a jet lag issue, I'm 
not remembering much of anything. <laughs> so it's really good to have those notes. I've, I've really worked hard to make myself every night, no matter how tired I am, just write down like the, the river, the place where we stayed. If I can, I'll mark it on a map and say like, okay, this campsite was here, especially if we're off grid and we're not staying at like a known location. Yeah, That's really yeah. important to say, oh yeah, this night we were at this coordinate and then be able to look back on that. That's cool. You know, one of the things I noticed too with, when you guys do your stories or when you do your stories, it's it's mm-hmm. always it's always like either print media or whatnot. I don't see much like social, or am I or am I mistaken in that? You know, we're seeing some of the bigger media houses in the industry just do a ton of social. Per, again, personal opinion. Yeah. If I didn't have this business, I would not be on social media. I I would kind of rather live my life and not have to tell everyone what I'm doing. Yeah. So I'll post occasionally. I think today, for example, we're in the middle of the, the coronavirus world now, and I just posted a picture of like a a fun, happy grayling from Swedish Lapland a few years ago. So it's a really fun form to interact with people and be able to showcase work when I feel like it. Mm-hmm. But occasionally I'll do, I think on this trip to Chile, I tried to post stories as often as we would get Wi-Fi, which was like twice in the entire week. So I'd go back through and share kind of the behind the scenes, like, hey, here's a video of us in the raft in 40 mile an hour winds. Or, you know, here's, here's kind of the funny behind the scenes stuff. I think it's really important with a job like this that you show people the stuff, the reality of it. Exactly. Because honestly, it's not always fun. There are moments that are amazing and they, that keeps me doing this. But it's a lot of time, like, I spent a whole night on that trip out sick in the middle of the woods crawling back into my tent when I could. Like, it's, that's kind of the reality of this is if you're out away from civilization, stuff's going to happen and you just mitigate that as much as possible. And if you're with a good group then it's, you still laugh it off kind of. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's kind of cool how you guys do that behind the scenes stuff. And I mean, it's, it, it does show the authenticity of it and the reality of it, which is great. So I agree more. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to jump to this last point here with us is you mentioned the coronavirus and here we are, we're in the coronavirus and this is clearly affecting your business. You know, this is just, I know we talked off air briefly about it and how it's affecting the States, how it's affecting Canada and how it's affecting globally. Absolutely. You know, what, what, were you traveling when this happened? Like walk us through any of that. Did any of this transpire? Um, I know it's affected some of your trips, but did it, did it transpire while you were traveling? You know, it's, I actually have been on the road a lot of Q1. I spent most of January and early February on the road and then was home for two weeks and then was down in Chile. And it really wasn't during my January, February travels. It it was kind of on the radar, but it was not here. You know, it was more of those mm-hmm. like, okay, we'll see it affect uh, Asia and probably Europe. But it was kind of a news headline that I would zip by. And then came back to Montana for a while. And then when I headed up to Chile, I think it was February 21st or 22nd. And it was kind of a, yeah, I know that's happening. That's interesting. But we weren't seeing, again, I don't think at that point it wasn't really we weren't seeing cases reported yeah. in the States. And then I went down there and was in a vacuum of no news for a week. Whenever we could get any kind of Wi-Fi, I'd post to Instagram real quickly and then not check email, not check anything. Um, and I remember flying back through Santiago and saw the news there. And it was, it was a thing then. It was kind of like, okay, this is an issue. Um, my dad is a retired physician. I got a note from him saying, hey, just be aware that you might want to do this, this, and this differently as you travel. Um, and then got back to Montana and I actually have a client here in Missoula that I work in their office sometimes when I'm here in Montana. 
and immediately got sent back to my apartment. They were like, no, you've been overseas. We don't want you anywhere near us. Um, so at that point, it was definitely like, oh, this, this is a thing. So they, um, they put you, really, just to jump in here, they put you in quarantine, like you quarantined yourself when you came back? Yeah, essentially it was, Easy. I, I self-quarantined a bit. I mean, mm. I still, I would go to the grocery store. I'd never had any symptoms. I'm luckily, knock yeah, on yeah, wood, yeah. staying really healthy. Um, but they just didn't want me in this. It's an office of about 60 people. They didn't want me in the office, which, you know, their their yeah. decision and yeah. that's totally fine. But that kind of made it seem real. You know, saying that, being like, oh, this this is a thing. And now we're, I'm looking out the window now here in Missoula. It's snowing and people are just kind of staying home. It's really interesting. I've been talking to some fishing guides here in Montana. And I think like all fishing guides are right now, they're seeing stuff, just bookings really start to drop off. So it's interesting. I'm trying to encourage people. I think I put a post on social a couple of days ago. Of just If you can, not everyone's going to be able to do it, but just defer your trip. You know, it's, it's someday we will be traveling again. This will pass. All things do. And if you're in the situation to do it, just defer your trip instead of outright canceling. Because I think once we're on the upside of this, lodges and guys are going to need all the help we can give them. The industry is going to need our help. And I know this is exactly what we're Absolutely. talking about. Absolutely. Is, you know, this is going to devastate yeah. many industries. But let's look at our own industry because we are family in this industry. And, mm-hmm. you know, we yeah, like any way we can support them. And I think I think that's a great idea of deferring your trip. I mean, guides I'm sure they're willing to to work with people on that, um, in mm-hmm. most cases and whatnot. So now is this gonna affect you, do you think, getting your start um when you fire up again? Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately I'm I had trips in April, May and June that I've had to cancel and I have potential trips in July and August that I'm waiting to hear from clients on if that will be a thing or not. Mm-hmm. So as, you know, as someone, and I'm by no means the only one, but as someone who travels to make money, it's definitely feeling it. You know, luckily I can pivot and kind of dig through the archives and still do some editorial work with images I already have. And yeah. I can do bits and pieces of writing here and there. So I'm like, I'm fine. And I'm very grateful for that. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge impact on business. Absolutely, for sure. So, and I just, you know, just to put it out there, I, we got to get ahead of this together. So hopefully we can, uh, we can do that together as well, because we are all in it together. So I know we both talked about that as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, Jess, you're, you are an inspiration to uh, so many people out there and your, your photos are as well. And, and so is your journalism. Who inspires you within the industry or not? I could give you a big list of. Yeah, um, let's hear it. Okay. Besides the industry, actually, I when I first started out, I was really keen. I got into photography to become a conflict photographer originally. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of marriage of fishing and photography and writing was a bit of a surprise. I picked up a camera with the initial intent to go cover war. So I still follow a lot of conflict photographers. There's a British gentleman named Jason P. Howe who lives in Spain, who is a, a fantastic photographer. He was spent I think over a decade in the Middle East and just has amazing images that kind of capture motion. I studied so much of this work when I was first beginning and I still do. And I mean, you go back through just all the old conflict photographers. There are several really good books that people can pick up. And that's another thing. As people are starting to play with photography, the first thing I tell people is look at a ton of work, like pick up, go to the library or go, I guess right now, order it in if you can. 
pick up a book with a bunch of good photography and just see what catches your eye and what you like and what you don't like. And then once you start seeing images that your eye really likes, ask yourself, okay, why do I like this image? And then eventually the goal will be kind of getting a style of photography that's your own, that you've developed. But I think it's really important for people just to look at good images. On the fly side, um, Brian Gregson, who's based out of Bozeman. Brian's been a huge help to me over the years. He's done this for so long and has traveled so many places. And if I'm going somewhere where I know he's been, I'll call him up and say, hey, what should I do with Visa or camera gear? Or how do you handle getting a drone into this country? You know, just odds and ends that are little tips and tricks that he's picked up over the years. He's been hugely helpful. We actually worked together for a few years at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing in Bozeman. And Brian's just, he's one of those good guys I can call with questions anytime. And that's so helpful. Definitely cool. So I'm having that mentor yeah. that can that you can jump back for it and forth on for sure. So you know, I I also want to talk mm-hmm. about Loon. I know um, you you do some work with Loon, or you've you're currently working with Loon. I do. And you just mentioned Yellow Dog. Um, was yeah. there anyone else you're doing stuff with? And if so, what exactly are you doing with these brands? You know, I actually so I when I left Orvis in 2015, I moved back to Montana and worked part-time on staff with Yellow Dog. I kind of ran their, their written communications in-house. And that was a great experience to learn about the ins and outs of the, the travel industry. And then I was actually the communications director for the American Fly Fishing Trade Association, which is also headquartered in Bozeman. So that was a super valuable tool to learn the people in the industry. I mean, AFTA organizes IFTD, the big trade show that we all go to. And that was just a big networking angle. I left both of them to go in back to freelance in 2017, I think. And since then, I work. I am lucky I get approached by a lot of brands to work with them. The only ones I kind of am now are loons. So I just, I have gotten back into fly tying as an adult. And I've always used loons floatants and their gear. So it's a very natural partnership there. And then uh, tacky fly boxes. Again, it's something that I was using the boxes, gosh, for a couple of years before we kind of actually started talking about anything because they're so small and streamlined. They're really easy to travel with. Mm-hmm. And that just makes life a lot easier if I'm not filling a whole suitcase with fly boxes, frankly. Just what's next for you? Once this, once all this clears up, what would you say is next for you guys, for you and your media? You know, who knows? Honestly, hopefully doing more of the same. Um, I'm still kind of scrambling on figuring out how to get through this next bit. We're all going to, and it's going to be fine, but I've got, I had a bunch of projects and shoots that now we're trying to reschedule or, or what do we do? But honestly, hopefully getting on a plane and going somewhere awesome with a bag full of fly rods and a bag full of camera gear. And that would make me very happy right now. It seems to be where you're happiest, isn't it? Absolutely. No, it's, Give me a fire out and a camera, and the world is pretty good. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll, I might call the episode that for sure. So I like it. I you love know, it. You, you know, just before I let you go, I want to ask the one question that I usually ask all my guests, and that's um, what's one thing that you would change within our industry? Mm, not to harp on it, I'd probably go back to the influencer thing. If I could just magically wave a wand and take away the, the whole idea of influencers, mm-hmm. I think that would do our industry a lot of good right now. I mean, I think retooling it or how it's done, you know, changing the the effect for sure. I I could see where you're going with that. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think it's, I mean, again, there are certain people, the the guys who are actually out there doing it. And I think of any influencer kind of benefit of the doubt, if they're 
the skill comes first and then the fame comes later. The social media thing comes later. Mm-hmm. That's often well-earned. Like if someone was a, an exceptional guide or an exceptional manufacturer or something, and then they become Insta-famous, good for them. They've earned it. But if people tout themselves online as a guide or as an expert in any field, it goes far beyond fly fishing. If someone says they're a professional rock climber or, you know, something, and then you actually get them on a rock and they can't boulder up six feet, then it's a problem. Um, I, I got really started on the idea when I had a shoot and a, a really famous influencer came out on the shoot who labels themselves the guide and they couldn't cast kind of, I don't know, 30 feet accurately. It was, we had real issues casting, which makes the Oikong photo shoot really challenging from the photographer's side. So as long as people are representing themselves honestly, no problem with it. Like go forth and keep crushing. But if people are labeling themselves as something they're not, I think just at a very base level, the dishonesty of it mm-hmm. is probably what, what gets my craw a little bit. No, and I'm glad we clarified that up because I think that's and that's what it needed to be. It was clarified up on in that regard mm-hmm. right? because it's cutting through the crap, right? And finding, you know, yeah. who's who's there and who can. You know, and, and usually one thing because I interview a, a lot of people and I'll tell you this this topic comes up a lot. And sometimes you inf- sure. you influence or sorry, you interview influencers and the influencers always say, I'm not an influencer. I'm just someone that just likes to educate people in something I believe in. Do you know what I mean? They don't mm-hmm. identify as an influencer. And that's that's really that's Definitely. how I, that's how I know when you know, in my opinion, that's, that's another reason why I know okay, they're not an influencer. They don't think of themselves as that. So are they Absolutely. Don't I, and if they're yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. They're especially people who like to teach, they're looking beyond themselves. They're trying to pass something on and it's not all about them. Yeah. And their experiences. Yeah. So I think anyone I'm I'm in awe of teachers. Anyone who likes to teach or is good at teaching, I think that's the hardest thing out there is to pass on skills. Kudos to those folks. We need more of that right now. For sure. No, definitely. I love it. So Jess, with that said, if one, someone wanted to get a hold of you, where would they do so? Oh, my website, jessmclaughlinmedia.com. And the last name's a mouthful, but if you try your best, usually it'll auto-populate and Google will bring it up. Um, and I'm sure you'll be able to see it on this, this podcast as well. But jessmclaughlinmedia.com is my website. And then uh, Instagram is just jess underscore mclaughlin underscore media. I'll make sure that I put all that in the show notes. Oh, awesome. Well, thanks, Greg, for that. No worries. No worries. Jess, I do want to thank you for being a guest today on our show. And listeners, I want to thank you guys as well. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. This has been a really fun distraction while we're all looking to be a little distracted these days. So thank you for that. You bet. No worries. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Fly Fishing Insider Podcast. If you like this podcast episode, please let us know. Leave a review and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast listening platform.